0: Hi everybody, welcome to day five of our Dying Matters Awareness week podcast. So for those of you that have been listening um, to the previous ones, you'll know that um, this is the final one in our instalment, and we're joined today by um, members of the community team and also people within our own organisation that help support um, discharge as well. So the theme this week is In a Good Place and as you'll know that we focused on uh, people who might die in UHM focus on the um, individualised care bundle. But actually what we want to talk about near the end of the week is the other services that we work with um, and the other teams that we work closely with um, to support with discharge and to support with people being in a good place when they're going home, um, wherever that may be. So um, for those of you that know, my name is Charmaine. I'm the end of life care facilitator for the Trust and also one of the palliative care nurse practitioners. People introduce themselves.
1: I'm Nikki Morgan, I'm team leader for the palliative care team, um, Royal Stoke and County
2: Hospital. Uh, uh, if we start at the top, Marie. Uh, Marie Ashley, discharge facilitator on ward 110 at the Royal Stoke. Bob and Karina.
3: Hi, I'm Karina, I'm the hospice lead nurse at Catherine House Hospice.
4: Bob and uh, Paul. Hi, I'm Paul Garner, I'm the lead for palliative and end of life care for Midlands Partnership NHS Foundation Trust.
0: Bob and Lynn. Oh, Lynn (laughs) There's always someone who's muted. So sorry.
5: Sorry. I'm Lynn Williams. I'm quality nurse uh, in education and patient flow here at the Royal Stoke.
0: Wonderful. Fabulous. Well, obviously, we want to thank you for joining us today and thank you so much for your time. I know it's um, it's busy times at the moment, but um, we're really keen to highlight different teams that work with um, we've been talking to you, people like Sedexo and um, and Atkoa this week. We've been talking to um, various different teams within the hospital. And we really wanted to talk to people who we work with who might be external to the hospital and, and highlight these relationships. So, I don't know if anybody wants to go first and kind of give people an idea of of what your um what your department does and and what your you know the teams do. I don't know, Paul. I'm looking at you because you're at the bottom of the screen. <laughs> I don't know if you can that. MPFT
4: and and what it does and and how you can help. Yeah, we're we're an integrated trust that supports patients and their families across Staffordshire and and Shropshire actually and and other parts of the country. Um, Caring for people with palliative care needs is is part of our core business, it's really important to us. Um, We believe it's everyone's business um, regardless of people's roles or profession and everybody has a a part to play in that. um, because we're an integrated trust, we offer lots of different services. So we we offer community nursing, but we also offer lots of therapy services, lots of specialist services for people with learning disabilities, mental health problems, children's services, and also um, social care and, so, and social workers. So we've got a really big group of staff that we can influence in terms of that journey. Um, I think that I, I suppose I, I'm here with, with with two hats on. Really, um, I'm here as the lead of of MPFT's end-of-life team, um, but I'm also here to represent um, our community nursing workforce and the broader workforce in what they contribute towards um, getting people to the place that they want to be, I guess, and keeping them there in the best possible circumstances. So there's there's a risk that I'll I'll keep talking for the entire podcast, but I'll stop (laughs) then, (laughs)
5: sorry. Carry on, carry on. (laughs) <laughs>
0: Absolutely, no. That's really good. I think, um, I think it's fabulous. You like you say you've got those two hats. So um, you know, there's the end of life team, but there's also the nursing team. So, um, from a kind of uh, keeping people at home point of view, how how does that work? What can what support services
4: look like? That? I think that um, I'll, I'll talk from the end of life service. We, we operate the palliative care coordination centre, which is a county wide service. And what what we do is we we get referrals in from from the community from all the hospitals and the hospices for people who are moving towards the end of life and they need they need care it's that simple and I think that we've got quite a good process in place now we've improved it significantly over the past few years and we're really quite speedy now being able to access care and give it to people I think we there's been a shift over the last sort of two years I think that Um, in the past most of our business came from the hospitals but we've seen a significant shift now we're we're getting requests not not to get people out of hospital but to keep them at home and I think that's that's really important and significant you know Um, and that's really that's really that's what motivates us really to do better with it because it makes such a huge difference to people Um, we do lots of work um, to keep people at home and, and to get them home beyond that and the Coordination Centre sort of manages that journey. We've got a team of clinicians who support the broader workforce to make that happen, really. So we've got um, palliative care leads. We've got a relatively small number compared to the patch that we cover, but we use that to try and develop our workforce to best keep people and get people home. Um, and, and that workforce that we work with is community nursing and AHPs and social workers and carers. And I think that it's about us. You know, you can have most highly skilled nurses, um, but if there's only 12 of you and there's thousands of patients, it doesn't go very far. So our ethos very much is about empowering the generalist workforce and getting them to understand how important their role is in it and giving them the skills, but not just the skills, the confidence to actually go out and deliver that care. Because I think it's very easy to teach something in a classroom It's very difficult in someone's home, potentially in the middle of the night, in very difficult circumstances where you haven't got the right things to hand to be able to manage that situation successfully. Because I think there's a under those circumstances that there's almost a pull towards dialing 999 and getting people into hospital and getting our staff to that place. It's like painting the fourth bridge, really, because you know we're constantly getting new staff through and developing them and trying to get them to that place. But It's exciting work, to be honest, because they're a wonderful workforce and community nursing is that they are our greatest asset and they are our main asset, really, from the point of view of palliative and end-of-life care. And it's a wonderful thing to see these nurses and other professionals develop those skills and be able to do these really difficult, really, really difficult sometimes interventions to keep people where they want to be. I was just
1: thinking, Paul, and perhaps... um... Marie and Lynn lucky enough uh, discharges from the acute sector into the community. How is this wondering from a, a supporting and educating staff point of view? What would you say are the top three things that would really make a difference to get people help that be a practice for the staff I
4: think that I think I would want the hospital staff to appreciate and, and, and I, I don't mean this to sound patronising in any way. I've been a hospital nurse and most of my career has been in hospital. I'm relatively new to the community. I think sometimes people forget that what little we have in someone's home and the more planning and more things that we can put in place to support them, the better really. You know, we haven't got a drug cupboard. We haven't got a doctor who's a couple of corridors away. You know, some some of this stuff is really, really difficult to achieve in someone's home. Even simple things like a, a mistake on an authorisation chart can take half a day to resolve, especially at the weekend. You know, the nurse will have to go to the out of hours doctors, get them to start, get them, to make an appointment, get them to change it, then take it back to the home, and that person could be in pain that whole time. You know, and it, I just think it's it make, the simplest things that are available in hospital can be really difficult to obtain in someone's home without the right planning. Um, and that's my that's my top one two and three I think
1: yeah yeah Yeah. and I don't know if Marie you wanted to talk about um how you see that from the other end when as a discharge facilitator you're looking at this planning and much of the work that you undertake oh Marie
2: you're muted
0: (laughs) sorry lovely
2: is that better yes Yes, okay sorry about that um the the struggle I have is um, nighttime needs we've got people who want to go home who can't actually go home because there's no nighttime cover and that causes quite a big problem because we have families who go into blind panic because they know they're not going to manage once the carers don't go you know stop it in the evening And um, so then we have to be looking at bed-based service, which is against the dying person's wish. Yeah. But we can't give the person what they want. And I, you know, I wondered if there's any way round moving forward we could get around that, so we can enable people to go home um, to where they want to be.
0: Yeah, I think I think this is something that, um, and I'm sure Paul and Lynn and Karina have all got experience of, and and something Mm. we've we've had for many many years unfortunately and I think there is no there's never going to be an easy fix or an easy an easy thing I I think for me often that then is about um, talking to relatives and talking to patients and setting that expectation of of what kind going to look like and what to expect before you know when we're having those conversations so when they're coming into hospital and you know we always talk about how you know, a discharge, start the admission, you know, and we start having a little think about how are you can change now you're in hospital. You know, what's different now you're here with us? You know, what could can't you do now that you could do when you came in? Um, you know, we're not just going with that blanket question of where do you want to go when you go home? You know, where do you want to go on discharge? Home, thank you very much, is, is a wonderful place to go. Um, but actually, we need to be having those conversations with people that that service doesn't a- a exist, unfortunately, in its in right. the form that, that we like. We can't offer 24-hour care at home, and and it's it's understandably it's it's distressing for people. Um, it's distressing that we can't offer, you know, that service. Will it, that just- ever change? Uh, well that's the million dollar question I think and, and unfortunately I think Paul's probably a little bit more um, experienced from a community aspect than we are but I do think it relies a lot on on bigger service and, and funding and money and stuff that we just don't have access to do, unfortunately and it's not that there isn't services um, it's just that when we look at funding that is available it's not covered um, in that and often families can support it themselves um,
4: but yeah I'm sure Paul I you yeah I agree with what you said it's about it's about expectations really and I think that I think that choosing where to die where you spend the end of life is is an important is is one of the most important things but it, it, it as in life most of the choices that we get we haven't got free reign to choose whatever we want um I mean, if, if if I, I mean, if I was being facetious, I could say that my, I would my preferred place of death is in the Caribbean. But I know that I'm not going to get that because the resources don't exist to put me there, and there's no clinical need for me to be there. So I think that we're always in, we're always balancing these situations off, and I think that every, nearly every person who dies at home, given the opportunity, would probably like to have round the clock care. And, and if you think about that in terms of the I think I think we I think it's between 1,500 and 2,000 patients that we managed to keep home or get home in the last 12 months. Um, if you imagine trying to provide that level of care for people, even from a practical point of view, you know it's not just about money; it's about staff. You know, one of the biggest challenges that we have at the moment is not money. We've got we've got money to get people home. It's finding the, the capacity and the staff and the agencies and the providers who can actually do it. So effectively, if you started providing that level of night care for people, you break the, you break an already broken system, really. So it's about the practicalities of it, but also I do think another thing's really important: it's about safety, because I think that you know I do think people have got the right to choose if they've got capacity, but also they need to understand the risks involved in that. I've seen I've seen many many people over the years who've chosen. To go home, even with night care. And the, the results have been really difficult for them. They've had a really bad experience because, you know, even having one carer 24 hours a day isn't the same as being in hospital. There's only so many things one person can do from a safety point of view. There are huge risks around it as well. So when we're making these decisions, it's about making decisions based on the person's wishes, but also involving the risk to them and the fact that it may lend lead them to having an absolutely horrendous experience. So I agree with what Charmaine says, about sometimes it's about those difficult conversations and helping people to understand what's involved in actually making that decision.
2: Yeah, one of the problems we have, though, is the, the person who, who is actually at the end of their life, um, is, first of all, they're coming to terms with what the tragic news they've been given, and now they would like to go home, and we're sort of telling them, you can't because there isn't any service there and that does have an impact on the patients yeah
4: well, absolutely. Let, let me reframe that slightly and I think that where we need to be is that those conversations are not being had in hospital that the person's at home because what we should be doing is we shouldn't be identifying people when they're imminently dying we should be identifying them much earlier and having those conversations months in advance or even longer because if you start to have those conversations earlier you can start to put the right things in place and then when the time comes they're already at home and you've got a lot of that support already organized and it becomes less difficult to actually make it happen. Yeah, I think that's part, of, part of the problem is the fact is we, we you know to me identifying someone who, who's going to die in the next few days and getting them home that isn't a great success really. That's a failure. We should have done it
2: earlier and we should have kept don't. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work like that on our ward due to the nature of, um, you know, people's wounds and problems they come in with. This is not sometimes I, well, most of the time identified on the ward uh, because I would hope somebody who is uh, dying has already got the ceiling and care in place to prevent them coming into hospital and having, you know, having to go through the system. But when our consultants come in and they can't take somebody to surgery, there's um, sometimes it is you are at the end of, you know, unfortunately you haven't got long to live. So yeah. we don't we don't have the time to have that discussion with patients and we throw a lot at them in a very short period of time.
0: And I think it comes back to again Marie, it's that difficult conversation. You know, we we it uh, is, Yes, uh, it, it, it's we, a difficult conversation, and it's and it's a service that we just know that we're not always going to be able to offer and and, right. and be able to support them with, and it's
1: it's difficult. <laughs> but, yes, the the complexities, and yeah. I guess in in a good place, the the dying matters. Yeah, um, tagline for for this week, in that for some people it might be a chronic progressive disease. There will have been recognition of advanced care planning and conversations and that's all really helpful of other patients that presented with an acute condition, a very rapid decline and are now suddenly dying. So I can see both of you absolutely and it just um, highlights the complexities that can be involved. Yes
0: Karina from a, a hospital's point of view and a um, uh, you know thinking about we've we've touched this week on advanced care plan and this kind of links in a little but from a hospital point of view what you can offer as a service is, is there anything really that you would you know like us to do from a hospital point of view in terms of patients coming home or um or anything that you know and conscious we work quite well together and we've there a lot of patients patient beds patient and community too
3: yeah, so I think I think because we cover we so we cover Stafford and Surround, so it's sort of South Staffordshire really. So working with you more more so with your county patients, but with a little bit of your of your Stoke Stoke patients as well. Um, you know, we work really closely with Paul's team and sort of the uh, district nurses as well to try and keep those patients in their preferred place of care if that is their preferred place of care. Um, but we have sort of a few different teams so we have sort of like specialist nurses who are able to go out and do sort of psychological support for the, both the patient and the family and sort of symptom control. But um, you know sort of the, some of the things of where the themes of some of these conversations are going as well is sort of our hospice at home teams. Um, but I think it's key to say that each sort of hospice sometimes works very differently in their approach to their hospice at home teams as well um, so we're very lucky in our setup for hospice at home that um we are set up for sort of rapid rapid response and these are it's all run by healthcare assistants and basically if they get a call they can be out within 20 minutes it obviously it, like everything, it, it's all to do with staffing. But the quickest that they've ever been out is picked up the phone is within 20 minutes, which is amazing. Um, and what they do is they can offer sort of a call a day to be able to go in and give somebody a wash so if you know you're waiting for that package of care you've gone through all that funding streams of fast track and you know that that package of care is going to be in within three days but actually you need to get them home right this minute if the family are happy to take them home then you know actually ringing our hospice at home team they could support and get in there Um, and sometimes what it is is um, we also have a care agency as well who was able to spot and actually do um the fixed times of the visits of what um people actually let them you know come in and do the set calls and um, the hospice at home team also are, do offer night sits but they're not every every single night what they do because they could have sort of five six seven people on the list of and it's about you know who do who do you choose for, to actually go in and do the night sit um which i think is really important because, you know, identifying sort of the need and making sure that everybody can get something um, rather than nothing at all. Um, But I do hear about sort of what Maria says about, um, you know, getting people and something happens very acutely in hospital and trying to get them home and all they're doing is trying to get on top of just that psychological understanding of the, of the diagnosis of, well, this has happened very, very suddenly. How, how can I deal with this? And then the family are still in that dilemma as well, but also are being asked to, to help support. And I think it goes back to those difficult conversations of, uh, with the family because they're going to take on quite a lot of this work and support
0: yeah absolutely absolutely no that's really good paul do you want to comment
4: yeah one other thing to mention with regards to to sort of care at night is that um we do have some provision from um murray curie across the county and crossroads specifically in in the north part of the county so that would be royal stokes footprint and we are actually in the process of actively working with them to make sure that we get so that we're making the best use of that because i think it's a really good resource I think the challenge that we have is that it's not it's not something we can put in place for sort of seven nights a week to no. provide because if we did that would probably take up most of it um, yeah. but i think that there is a there is hopefully ways that we can make better use of it and they're really willing to work with us so we're in active conversations with them at the moment yeah. and they're really good partners and we're looking at how we can make better use of that going forward really so but again i think the challenge that we've got marie from the hospital's point of view is that we've got people at home in desperate circumstances. And again, I know, although people don't want to be in hospital, but I suppose at least they're, they're safe there. So we tend to have to use what capacity we've got to support people already at home, because otherwise they'll end up in hospital, and it kind of just becomes a vicious circle otherwise. So again, we do, we do our best with what we've got, um, yeah. and I think that we're always happy to take sort of advice or input into how we can do things better. So.
0: I think, thank you both. Well, the three of you, I, I think that's, you know, it's really useful and I think it's it's always such a difficult conversation, isn't it? And it's always, and I think like Nikki said, or the patients and, and the relatives and the families that, that we support with, they're not straightforward all the all of the time, you know, and we don't have, you know, it, it's not a, a, a simple discharge often and it's not a simple situation that, that's got, you know, one easy fix for everybody. And I think this reminds me really how Complex our patients are, and also why we work together um,
1: because of that. And because and some you know, family members have got extended family members, yeah. who perhaps haven't got as many commitments, um, I've perhaps got the skills and the experience, and are happy to provide all the care and do so beautifully. Yeah, and for other family members, perhaps they're a lone child who's got other work commitments or the family commitments, and it's much more difficult. So, it's exploring all of that as well.
4: And some people we've got got no one,
1: to be honest. Yeah. yeah, definitely, absolutely.
0: So bringing it slightly back, though, obviously, Paul, at the beginning, we talked about, um, you know, things we can do in the hospital in terms of that very much being mindful that, you know, you don't have a, you're not a hospital in somebody's house and you don't have no services. Um, Lynn, from a, a discharge point of view as well of, of getting people out, are, are there things that you would like... To you know, our staff to be doing or to be thinking about in terms of, you know, the discharge and stuff to, you know, to prompt us really. I know we're doing separate work to on discharge planning um, and we're doing a lot of work around rapid discharge, but in terms of, you know, key messages such as the authorization chart, such as the talks and stuff, is there anything from your point of view?
5: Um, I did um, um, a few case studies recently. I was asked uh, by Claire McCurdy to do some and, um, what was evident in the case studies on the three patients, because all three died here in the trust without being able to get uh, discharged, but they were linked in with track and triage at the time. So on all three of them, I noticed that um, there was a reduced amount of communication between the wards and track and triage whilst the care was being sourced. Okay. So, you know, once the fast track was approved and once it went to add uh, and then it was awaiting uh, for the the care, the actual care package. So what happened in, those, in that period of time was deterioration and changes with the patient, because that can happen rapidly, can't it? Sometimes unexpectedly, because <coughs> obviously, Fast track patients vary in in um, stability, so some maybe are a bit more stable than others, but then there's always an unexpected deterioration with some of them. So, it's, so I would suggest that there's more um, uh, more frequent interaction between the wards and track and triage, so they have more updates about the stability of the patient being able to be moved. Um, Obviously, if they have deteriorated and it's advised that they, they shouldn't be moved, um, then the care that's been sourced for that person can actually go to somebody else, because there's obviously more than just a few patients trying to get out at the same time, isn't there really, as well. So the care can be diverted elsewhere. Um I think, on the whole, I think the wards do really, really well in, in getting all the documentation done and everything now and the authorisation charts. I haven't, there wasn't anything that, that popped up with those case studies that I looked at, uh, that there were issues there. I don't know if Marie's um, has come across, mind you, I mean, you don't want to be saying if you had any feedback from um, <laughs> patients from from families from or or from MPFT with any DTX to say if there's been any issues with any of your discharges. But um I think um another issue that I found with the case studies was there was one particular patient that had been in eight times in eight months um and was known to the district nursing team um but there was no respect document which was a concern because um, the patient had a, quite a significant pressure damage as well. And that's what the patient was dying from, excuse me. So um, I think there's probably still a lot of work to do in order to try and prevent patients coming in that don't necessarily want to come in because out, out of the three patients, two of them didn't want to come in either. Yeah. So it was, you know, uh, it was awful for them that they actually come into hospital and died here absolutely didn't want to come in in the first place yeah
0: I um guess. there's a couple of things there isn't there then so i think there's definitely communication uh, between our, our you know our ward teams and our and our other teams within the hospital as well and i think we again the complexity of, of trying to discharge patients at home it, it also reminds us that it's not just a, a one singular team involved and in, there's multiple people so mm-hmm. You know mm. yourselves there's traffic payage. There's the OTs, there's the medical team, there's the nursing staff. There's also if we're involved from a palliative care point of view. So I think there is a lot of people that need to be having conversations for just one patient, and that can be quite complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think very much like Will has already said, it's that difficult balance sometimes, isn't it, of people who don't
5: necessarily want to come
0: into hospital, but
5: hospital is still the other issue I've found as well is obviously the doctor's um, obviously trained to try and save life as much as possible, don't they? You know, And I think sometimes it's they, do, they don't want to give up on the patient and it's treatment after treatment after treatment. So hence the respect documents are very important, I think, um, so that they have the patient's voice and before they become too poorly to actually say what, what they want. Because they go through quite a lot of invasive horrible investigations and um it's not always wanted um and sometimes just to actually get to that well what is causing this person to to die Mm -hmm. you know for a, a a specific diagnosis when actually they should be weighing up whether it's it's more about comfort for the patient or 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 is it about, you know, quantity of life really and uh, going through all the treatments and, and tests. Mm-hmm. So um, I think the doctors as well, um, still there's still room for improvement there to sort of have these early conversations with people mm-hmm. so that they, they can make more of an informed decision about their, their future life. So it's all about the life planning isn't it really and and what they want and what I found with all three of these patients that come in um it was all conversations with the family because the patients were too poorly then or is not having capacity to make decisions for themselves. So it was put on the family, but the family are put in a position then because they don't want to say, no, don't don't carry on with treatments, etc. It's always something in the middle. So they carry on investigating the patients and then treating them, and then it goes on. So each one of these patients have been in about 30 days. Yeah. yeah. And because family don't want to make that decision, you know, I remember when my mum was poorly in intensive care, and somebody said to me, "Would she like to be resuscitated?" And I said, "Well, my mother's got capacity. Ask her, ask her herself. You yeah. know, because personally, for me, I'd say, yeah, because <laughs> I want my mum to be here. But yeah, you, you know, yeah. You, you know what I'm saying, don't you? You know, so." about reframing those
0: questions isn't it it's about you know and, and not always putting that ownership on and it's not uh you're absolutely right it's it's not a it's a joint decision that we include families within the decision making but it's not a decision that families are expected to make solely on their own and it's a joint joint that we do i think paul you've you've wanted to you want to come in
4: <laughs> yeah a couple of things just a technical point first of all in, in the, the patients that come in out of um, the hospital generally now are not actually fast tracked they're actually on our on our, our care pathway. So it's a, it's a pre assessment pathway that gets people out quickly. And then what we do is we do the formal fast track in the community. So yeah. it it may sound like a technical point, but it, it, it just to, just to be accurate. So and what that's allowed us to do is it's allowed us to improve the speed of people's discharges. So we're now getting care in place for people the same day on the next day in about sixty seven percent of cases. So mm-hmm. Hopefully, because there's not a significant gap between when the the transfer of care forms are put in and Track and Tree are just submitting them, hopefully because there isn't too big a gap, then communication doesn't break down too quickly. So we are working on that to reduce that, but obviously we have to work with what capacity is in the market. But um, it's a work in progress, but we've definitely made improvements. I think prior to COVID, it took between four and 11 days to source care. So obviously we've made major strides. Um, And I've seen those three reviews that you did, Lynn. Um, I've been in a meeting where we've discussed them. And I think that you're right, lots of things that you highlighted. I think the respect documents are very important, but I think that they're the end point, not the beginning. I think the, the beginning point is correctly identifying patients and their needs, having those conversations, and then documenting them meaningfully on a respect document. I think one of the biggest challenges that we have um, and I know that Roll Stoke has as well for people who are readmitted, is that what's written on a RESPECT document isn't always particularly helpful from a community perspective. I think one of the commonest things we see is that on a RESPECT form that's written on a ward, it will say for ward-based care. Now actually, sitting in someone's living room, that doesn't have a great deal of use, because what that implies is that they should be readmitted. So it's really yeah. difficult, and a lot of the RESPECT forms yeah. just... They just indicate that that CPR is not recommended and not much else. Again, which is a real challenge if you want to keep someone at home and manage them at home. And again, you know, we've had, I've had a case this week where we had a, a patient who was uh, we brought out of hospital rapidly because they were deteriorating. We wrapped care around them um, on the understanding they were coming towards the end of life and family were all signed up to it. But when it actually came to the point where the patient was deteriorating and approaching the end of their life, uh, the family ripped the respect document up and insisted that the patient was still for resuscitation and admission and the patient actually was readmitted. So I'm sure that I'm sure the doctors in the emergency department who received that patient were were very confused and perplexed as to why they'd come in. But again, that's the complexity of the situations that we're dealing with. And that patient that had our input, the community nurses input, and and uh, Dudley and Mac and Douglas Macmillan's input as well at that point. And they still yeah. end up bouncing So it comes back to that proper conversation with people, making sure they understand what we're talking about and making sure they're signed up to that decision making, really. Absolutely. At the end of the day, though. Oh, sorry, Charmaine,
5: I should have put yeah. but, um But, you know, the the respect documents, they're not um, like tablets of stone, are they can't change your mind, go on, yes, exactly. So we'd understand that if patients came in and had a change of heart because it's a scary position to be in, isn't it, really?
4: And and I'd I'd, I'd echo that point and say that that's on a respect document, the R in respect stands for recommendations. They're recommendations that clinicians have to make decisions about, so you're absolutely right. But again, I think, you know, it felt like the clinician wasn't making the decision in those circumstances. It was a family who maybe didn't understand the, the decision they'd originally made properly. So but it, it can be very complicated. And obviously, it's very emotionally fraught at that time. And people do panic and make sort of decisions that might not seem wise in hindsight, perhaps.
2: Is my hand, is my hand raised on the... Yes, it yes. is. Okay, yeah. could, I, could I just make a point, a couple of points? the when the person's already at home couldn't the GP do the respectful yes to prevent people coming into hospital because then if that's already on then that should stop them from even getting in here
0: so so there's a couple of uh, there's a couple of points there and, and Carina's raising her hand so I'll definitely go to her in a minute I think there's a couple of things you've said that again on technicality points of view um you know, it's a, we're in a difficult situation, as Paul and then have quite rightly pointed out, a very complex patient and absolutely GPs can be involved, you know, and we've got to be in what we do do on our is, um We have an live where we recommend uh, some things for the GPs uh, actions such as putting people on the GSF register, so they are a respect for any of them. and they going home with anticipatory medication. And there's an option there for us to be involved so of course we can ask them and we can uh, we can encourage but just as Paul has said dependent on those conversations and dependent on what the patient's wishes are the respect form doesn't stop people coming into hospital and that's not what it's designed to do um, the respect form is a much bigger piece of work and a, a much bigger conversation and and can actually be used for any patient who has a, a life limiting condition not just those that are imminently thought to be in last weeks or months of life so I think there's a a bigger piece of work we need to do around the RESPECT form and its uses um, and how it's used more appropriately and just as Lynn has said it's a document that can be updated as the patient's condition deteriorates and we all on this call can have that opportunity then to you know to change that with the patient with the family and with their wishes so I think it's not as as simple unfortunately as GPB involved and then we stop somebody coming into hospital and, and ultimately the doors are always open. <laughs> we are we are here for the patients no matter what. And if somebody decides they want to come in, then absolutely come on in, and, and we will you know we'll we'll, we'll happily support yeah. and treat you. And if patients feel that this is their preferred place of care, because sometimes it is, um, yeah. we'd happily
2: treat them as, as we can do and support their families as well. As Lou like, said, two people didn't want to come in. And yeah. they ended up in hospitals. So if yeah. the respect form was there with their wishes on it, then yeah. they wouldn't have come in. Yeah,
1: It's really, really difficult, I think, when you're having these conversations to try, mm-hmm. and any advanced care planning conversation, to predict your future for mm-hmm. that exact mm-hmm. set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. It's so uncertain that, yeah. um, as Paul yeah. said, it's a recommendation of prior known wishes yes. And it's so difficult to predict exactly what service will be available, who will be with the person at that time. And it's often a 999 call, and people have got to make what they think is the best interest decision while they're with the patient at that time, I think, really. I don't know if Karina, Karina, go
3: on. Nikki, that's exactly what I was going to say. How did you know? (laughs) (laughs) I don't mind. I think I think with the respect documentation I think it's amazing you know it gives us a plan of care and so sort of every person that sort of goes in and if you know we are in that lovely situation of a Um, a person who doesn't have any any symptoms but isn't requiring sort of lots of care and support then that's where sort of the respect documentation comes into its element really it clearly states and people are coping well at home but I think you know at two o'clock in the morning when there's you know limited staff covering the area and I have to say that our area is really lucky because we do have district nurses out of hours whereas a lot of people actually in other areas of the country actually have uh, GPs who have to come out to people's houses and administer PRN medications um, so I think we are actually in a really lucky place here yeah. um, so it's about you know two o'clock in the morning and um, the district nurse is there the patient is really distressed they still can't get on top of their symptoms what do you do in an ambulance to try and see if they'll, they'll help and um, the family just actually can't cope the patient's on their own the you know the patient doesn't Want to get over to hospital? It says on the respect, but actually they've changed their mind while they're there. So although it says that on the recommended, actually at that moment in time, they want security, and that's the that's where they end up into the hospital is because of the security of what what can be offered in the hospital. Um, because you know it goes back to when somebody goes home, what we have to do is have those very difficult conversations um, about explaining it, giving families an informed choice about this is how it's going to be at home and being very realistic that, you know, we we will put as much support in as possible, but actually we don't we don't live with you. Um, yeah. I think is, is, is the key message, really.
0: But Paul, anything you wanted to add
4: on? Yeah, I, I, well, first of all, I'd like to reiterate what Karina said. I I'd like to give a shout out to our um, out of hours community nursing service. I think yeah, they are yeah. amazing. We've, we've, it's countywide. We've got three different number of different teams. There's one in the north, um, and most of what they do is palliative care, if I'm honest, and 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 then it's done under very very difficult circumstances. And I think, but I do think that. I mean, again, I think I'll go back to my original point. I mean, as a hospital nurse, you know, when I practice in hospital, you know, lots of things seem very black and white, cut and dried, when you've got someone in a comfortable bed surrounded by nurses and health cares and the decisions seem relatively easy but actually when you've got someone at home in the the conditions that Karina described when you're not sure when you haven't got someone to make it support your decision making as a nurse you know because at the end of the day some of these decisions are very serious have serious repercussions and we're dealing with people whose conditions are predictable so you know the classic ones are people with heart failure, people with COPD, people with dementia who stop eating and drinking. You know, quite often, they will look like they're dying, and then they'll rally, and they'll have, another, they'll have another spurt of life. Now, what should happen is clearly planning for the time when that does doesn't happen. But it's really difficult to make that decision sometimes when you're faced with it in, someone's, in, in, a, in, a, in a hospital bed in someone's living room is to differentiate between that and an end-of-life experience. And sometimes we have to err on the side of caution because we don't want people to die sooner than they would otherwise. You know, when they do, when they do die, we want it to be that that we couldn't reasonably do anything to stop that happening. So there's always a balance. It isn't just a simple decision that someone's dying and we should treat them accordingly. You know, when we get we get patients who come to us who are dying that we provide care for. And a proportion of them but a significant proportion of them actually get a bit better and they go off they go off the pathway, they are no longer fast trackable and they need to have access to other forms of care. And I'm not suggesting they're gonna live forever, but they're certainly not actively dying anymore. But if we manage them as actively dying in an aggressive way, they probably should die. So that's what we have to balance off. You know, it's about doing the best with people trying to reasonably extend their life, but obviously trying to manage them within their wishes.
0: Marina, do you want to add to that as well?
3: I think I I just wanted to go back to what we said about respect, if I'm honest, um, of what Marie said about um, GPs completing respect forms. It doesn't just have to be um, GPs um, as well. It can be sort of advanced nurse specialists or, you know, we have um, nurse specialists in our community team who can go out and have these discussions with people and I uh, think like you know the thing that Paul first said is it's everybody's responsibility as yeah. well you know that was the sort of first thing on this podcast that we talked about is you know it's about getting everybody involved and actually the thing about dying matters um, and the good thing about it is getting the community to talk so talking about it with your family as well.
0: Definitely, definitely. yeah absolutely and I think that's, that's a good thing about Diamonds Awareness Week and, and what we're doing today you know it opens up the conversation and it opens up a dialogue not just between um, us as professionals but actually it does it does allow us to talk it does allow us to to think about these things difficult and and look at different aspects you know the the difficulties that we face on on you know there are difficulties in the community as well and, and it allows us to speak together what absolutely opens dialogue between families and patients and you know, those loved ones around us as well, that, you know, then we can have these difficult conversations and encourage them. And that, you know, death and dying isn't a taboo subject and something we should be shying away from. It's something, as Paul has said, everybody is, is going to die at some point and this is going to happen to us all. And we need to be talking about it and actively encouraging these conversations. Uh, Marie, I'm conscious of the time. Do you want to add something else very quickly? Well, to, uh... it's
2: very quickly, Paul mentioned that uh, in the community, sometimes on the respect form, it says, ward-based care Mm -hmm. Um, I do experience a lot of the doctors who will come to me and ask me what do I put on the respect form I'm a band three discharge facility I haven't got a clue Um, can there be some training or a dummy respect form Um, so there's some guidance for them because it isn't just one or two this is this happens a lot
0: yeah i think and, um, and that might
2: be why the information is so sparse at the other end is because they don't really know what they're putting on it
0: i think you're right so there there is actually that there's a whole respect intranet page and i would actively encourage you to to sign post doctors and, and other health professionals to okay. that um if you on our intranet page uh internal to UHM, if you type in respect, yeah. um, there's, whole section and there is dummy <laughs> there's a dummy one there i will do it will. yeah and if you get stuck we have a dummy one i've personally handwritten it not that it's great but you know it's not bad um that i've handwritten myself and and that we've done with our consultants and that we do put on on, on our teaching sessions and um, we also have on our um teaching sessions we do a respect um we cover respect as well with our consultants teach the doctors how um how to complete them and, and what some of the things that they could be documenting on um you know so we are actively encouraging training and teaching it just obviously with all these things it takes time to
1: filter down to the, to the yeah. relevant people and it, it gets there yeah yeah and and just to add i guess bringing things to a close the two real take-home messages for yeah. me today are the it's everybody's business everybody's responsibility and the need for communication i think yeah. those are the two yeah. things for me absolutely and
0: i i think i would echo that i think um Yeah, I think we've in in what we've we've done, sort of forty-five minutes. I think we've simply covered so many topics, Um, and we've talked about a lot. And I I think it's been really useful. Paul, do you want to come in before we close?
4: (laughs) One last observation about respect documents. I think for me, it's really simple. Whatever, if if you imagine yourself in someone's home, okay, what you write on recommendations you write on the respect form. What would help you? to fulfil the wishes of that person from a practical point of view. So it's not necessarily what you shouldn't do, it might also be what you should do instead. Yeah. So, And that doesn't have to be really complicated, but it can be really helpful. You know, I suppose for me, saying not for admission to hospital doesn't really give us any means to not make that happen. So you, you, you're standing in someone's room. okay, I'm not supposed to admit this person, what am I supposed to do instead? So, and and if, if that that principle I think is really helpful when you're writing the respect documents, so, which I've done many, so. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. You can say yours are good. <laughs> 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 Wonderful. Okay. Well, I, I am going to wrap it up because I'm conscious of the time, and I am so, so very grateful for your input today from all of you. It, it has been, I hope you found this useful. I know I haven't, and it's been really interesting, and I'm sure people listening will have found this just as interesting. I think we've... We've covered multiple topics, we've talked about lots of different services. Um, you've really, really highlighted all of the different teams that work within the areas and um and how actually we all work together for the, you know, for the combined aim of making sure our patients are safe and where they want to be and supported. Um and as we've massively highlighted, this is such a complex area, um, but one that we need to continue to communicate with each other about and one that we need to speak about. So Thank you so much. Um, so for people listening, again, thank you. This was the last of our um, Diamatics Awareness podcasts for the week. Um, I hope you've enjoyed them. Um, please feel free to um, to get in touch if you've got any questions. As always, um, the Palliative Care team at UHNM, we're available on Twitter, on Facebook. We've got an intranet page, an internet page, um, and you're more than welcome to ring us as well if you want to. Um, But again, thank you so much to everybody who's who's come today. I hugely appreciate your time um, and your support. Um, And and yes, thank you. (laughs)